Today's scripture reading is 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 1 through 24. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So our series this fall, which is in the Old Testament, is taking us through some of the most important uh, stories in the first, what is almost three-fourths of, of the Bible, which is the Old Testament. And uh, we're hitting some of, of the great characters and the most important um, um, texts of Scripture, the most crucial moments in the story of, of God's work with humanity. And today is no exception. And, and last week we were at one of the highest high points in, in, in the Old Testament and indeed the entire Bible. It was God's unconditional covenant that he had made with the house and line of David. 
That story that stretches all the way, and we're going to enter into the season of Advent soon, and, 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 and the story of Christmas, and then that's that story of that unconditional promise to David that culminates and climaxes in Jesus. So we were at one of the highest of heights in Scripture. But today we get to what has to be one of the lowest of the lows, the story of the prophet Elijah, his introduction. Now, since the days of David, and, and he ruled over a united kingdom, he had brought people together, and his son Solomon had built the temple, and, and that was really the, the peak of the power of ancient Israel. But after that, things began to fall apart quickly. You had uh, uh, the kingdom divide into the southern kingdom of Judah with its, cap, uh, uh, with its capital in Jerusalem, and the northern kingdom of Israel with its capital in Samaria. And then almost without interruption, each successive king goes from bad to worse. It's, it, it's, it's a downward spiral. But when we get to our passage today, the northern kingdom of Israel, it's at its absolute nadir, its lowest point. In the paragraph that immediately preceded the one that, that when Matt began to read from 1 Kings 17, that paragraph says this, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, so that's who's ruling in the south, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. So he began to be king over the northern kingdom. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And here's where we learn how bad it was. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. So when it comes to kings, and this is a, is a bad list already, Ahab was the absolute worst of the worst. In order to uh, forge a political alliance with the powerful Sidonians, these were a coastal people who were rich and, and, and powerful, he married a woman by the name of Jezebel. And Jezebel brought with her to Samaria and Israel a strident program of what I call Baalification. She had Ahab build a temple to Baal in Samaria, and she brought with her scores of the prophets of Baal. And she began to not just marginalize, but persecute the prophets of the Lord. Jezebel's goal wasn't to introduce some, you know, religious pluralism into Israel. It was to replace Judaism with Baalism, and she was extremely aggressive in pursuing her goal. Now, you can imagine that if you were a faithful Jew living in the northern kingdom, what a catastrophe that would be. I mean, you know, surely a lot of the kings before, they had, they had tolerated um, idolatry, and they, they had tolerated uh, uh, religious pluralism, but here is a king in Ahab who is not only tolerating this and winking at it, but he's actively promoting Baal, and he's actively persecuting those who worship the Lord. And so into this great situation of distress, this catastrophe, this calamity, appears a figure named Elijah the Tishbite with a word from the Lord to Ahab, directly to the king. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So a couple things are going on uh, right here. Uh, first is, is, this is the first we hear of Elijah. He gets no introduction. We get no call story how he entered into the ministry. We don't know anything about his family, his upbringing, his education, what brought him to this moment. He just pff, appears on the scene. We have no preparation for him, no scene setting at all. No one could have predicted that there would be an Elijah. No one could have anticipated Elijah. 
Now, this should be an encouragement to us when we find ourselves living in wicked times. It's in times when it seems like evil is winning and, and there's no one to stop it. In times which seem to mirror the words of Yeats's poem, The Second Coming, with those immortal lines, the best lack all conviction, while the worst are filled with passionate intensity. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are filled with passionate intensity. Arguably, one could apply such sentiments to our own era. I mean, you, you turn on the news and you, you, you read about this violence in the street. Proud Boys versus Antifa. They are filled with passionate intensity. All heat, no light. Now, arguably, you could say that that, that applies to them. And so we can say that even in our own time, we could say that when such uh, things occur, that it's easy to lose hope. It's easy to lose faith. It's easy to become jaded. It's easy to become nihilistic. It's, it's easy to become cynical and just go, nothing matters, you know, nothing matters at all. And you just sort of give up on everything. And you look at the state of the world and you go, no one's in charge. No one knows what they're doing. No one's taking control. You know, there's no captain to this ship to steer us to a safe port. But Elijah's sudden appearance, I believe, should give us great hope in the midst of our despair. Because when our situation seems hopeless to us, we can trust that God somewhere is preparing just the right person. Which should fill us with humility, too, because we don't know who that person is going to be. And we don't know where, when or where that person is going to emerge from. A person of courage and conviction. A person who will not be afraid to speak truth to power political power, cultural power, religious power. A, a person who will not be afraid to say, you know, the Lord is God and, and Baal is not, or if we were to put it in Christian terms, which N.T. Wright always talks about in the New Testament, he's saying, you know, when you say Jesus is Lord, you're also saying the implication is Caesar is not. We got another king. We got another God. There's someone else who we take our marching orders from. And the good news is we will not be able to predict who this person will be or where he or she is going to come from. But God's at work. And the second thing we need to understand about Elijah's message to Ahab, his message about no dew, no rain, is that it is a direct challenge to the central tenets of Baalism, to the religion of Baal. In Canaanite religion, Baal was the god of thunder and of storm. And thus, Baal was responsible for bringing the rain which made the crops grow. And so when Elijah said, it's not going to rain until I say so, this is the beginning of a trial, of a test to see who the real God is. Is it the Lord or is it Baal? And this is a trial and a test that's going to culminate on Mount Carmel. But who's the real God? Who's the real Lord? And so Ahab and Jezebel, they placed all their chips on Baal and his many prophets. And Elijah is betting on the Lord. And the last thing I want to note here is that in his initial speech, we see what is the great theme that ties this entire chapter together. And, and, and it's in these words. So Elijah says, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, lives, and, and, and uh, the widow in Zarephath, she says, as the Lord your God lives, 
So the great theme of this passage is that the Lord is a living God. And so the question for Elijah and for the widow and for us is what does it mean to say that we have a living God? And here's three parts. I mean, there's more, but here's just three parts that we see here. That the living God is a boundary-crossing God. A living God is a God whose words we, word we can trust, and a living God is stronger than death. And so first, a living God is a boundary-crossing God. Now for us, that doesn't seem like a big deal. Of course, God is God everywhere all the time. But in the, the polytheism of the ancient world, it was assumed as an article of faith that gods were territorial. You know, so Baal was in charge over the, the territory of the people who worship Baal, and the Lord was in charge over the territory of, of the people who worship the Lord. And so the, the way a god could extend his or her rule was by his or her earthly representatives capturing more territory. The Lord rules in Zion, Baal rules, rules in Sidon. So gods were not seen as universal. They were localized. They were territorial. They were tribal. They were ethnic. But the biblical God is entirely different because he is a living God and his reign extends over all the earth. He's the God not just of the Hebrews like Elijah, but also of the Sidonian widow. And so look at all, all of the, the, the boundaries that this living God crosses. He, he crosses a geographical boundary, goes from, from Israel and Samaria into the wilderness, and then even into enemy territory, into Sidon. He crosses an ethnic boundary, sending Elijah to the home of a woman who was from a different, and not just a different, but a rival and a hated ethnic group. He crosses a religious boundary. The widow says to Elijah, she doesn't just talk about, you know, the living God, but she says, as the Lord, your God, meaning he's not my God, lives. She's not a Jew, but to a living God, this doesn't matter. He, he crosses, you know, class boundaries, because in the ancient world, the rule of God was tied up with the rule of a king. Kings were earthly representatives of the deity. So gods really concern themselves with the affairs of kings and generals and armies. But here is a God going into the home of a poor widow. And as a widow, she was the poorest of the poor, the most vulnerable in her society. And it's clear from our passage that this woman has almost nothing left. I mean, literally, she's got to look around for two sticks to rub together. She has nothing. Nothing at all. She's in abject poverty. And also, she's a woman. And, and so, in, 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 in the uh, sort of social structure of that day, she's at a very precarious place at the bottom. But to a living God, none of that matter be, matters because he's God over the whole earth, not just one little slice of land. And he's God for the poor and powerless, not, not the rich and powerful. He's the God of all nations and peoples and races, not just a, a tribal deity, not just a deity for one ethnic group, and he's not just a, a deity for people with one color skin. He's the God for the people who are nothing and who have nothing. And he's God for the people who don't even know him yet. That's what it means to say he's a living God. And, and, and the problem for most of us is that in, in the words of J.B. Phillips, our God is too small. He's too small. For so many of us, God is a God for people who look like us and who think like us and who talk like us, and who shop like us, and, and, and who go to the same schools that we do, and who votes like us too. 
But that's not the living God. A living God cannot be domesticated. Now, second, a living God is a God whose word can be trusted in the face of miserable odds and impossible circumstances. A God who we can trust in those circumstances with our very lives. You know, Elijah, he speaks truth to power. He goes right to Ahab in obedience. I mean, uh, he, he tells the king to his face, a drought is coming. There's a technical term for that. That's chutzpah right there. Elijah has chutzpah. And then the word of the God, the word of God, it, it, it brings him into the wilderness to be fed by ravens. And ravens were actually unclean animals. But he takes him out there to be fed by ravens. And then when the water runs out, the word of God prompts him to go to this widow and to ask her audaciously for the rest of what little she has and to give him it first. All on the promise that, as, as Elijah says to her, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Which had been a long time at this point. And so this woman, she's preparing, you know, what's essentially the last supper for her and her son. And Elijah was asking her to spend some of her precious last resources on him. He was asking her to risk it all based on this promise. Do not, be, do not fear. Do not be afraid, which, as I uh, can remind you, is the most common command in the Bible. Do not fear. And Scripture says a remarkable thing. After hearing this, she went and did as Elijah said. I love what one commentator says on this moment. He says, can there be a clearer picture of what faith essentially is? Faith is staking everything upon God's sheer word, wagering all upon the veracity of God. And it's not just doing that once. It's doing it day after day after day. Every single day, she's got to go down to her pantry, to her kitchen. She's got to see if there's any flour left. She's got to see if there's any oil left in that jar. She had to stake her very existence every single day on God being true to his word. And Elijah had to do the same because every single day his credibility was at stake. But every day her faith was tested and proven. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and her household ate for many days. So the jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Now the same commentator again says, most of us believers never get more sophisticated than this widow. Some of us may know more apologetics or philosophy or theology than she ever did. But at the end of the day, we find that faith consists in leaning all our weight upon the mere word of God. Right? When all else is stripped away, that's what we've got. That, 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 that's, that's the promise that we have. And in the precariousness of life and the exigencies of existence, only the word of a living God can sustain us. 
moment by moment, day by day, season by season. Because only he can be trusted to ultimately keep his word. And finally, a living God is a God who is stronger than death. Now, we've seen that a living God can cross any earthly boundary, any, any label, any barrier, any group, any human construction that, that we make to, to differentiate and segregate and separate ourselves into different buckets and categories. A living God can overcome those, no problem, no surprise. But what about that ultimate boundary, that boundary that we all face? That's no man-made boundary. This is a real boundary, the boundary between life and death. Our story, you know, it could have had such a happy ending. Elijah came, the oil and flour never ran out, and they survived. But then all of a sudden, into this story comes death as an uninvited guest. It rears its ugly head. You know, God has provided food for this family. But then he allows this woman's only son, the son whom she loves, to get ill and to slip away. He dies not from hunger, as she thought, but from illness. It's almost a cruel joke. His life was spared to bring her to this moment of even greater grief where she is going to have to bury her own child. And when she speaks to Elijah, we can hear her cries of anguish. We can feel her guilt. What she done wrong? Why is God punishing her? And Elijah doesn't understand it either. And true his credit, he doesn't pretend to. He doesn't offer her false comfort, false consolation. He doesn't tell her, well, you know, God just needed another angel in heaven. Or he's gone to a better place. Elijah takes the boy's body and he prays. And he stretches out his body. He prays and he stretches out. And notice how he prays. It says, and he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? When he prays, he prays as an advocate for this woman. He prays as someone who is entering into her pain. And would that we would learn to pray for people like this. To advocate for them before the throne of glory. And then he stretches out his body and he does it three times and it's weird and it's not exactly clear what he's doing when he does that. Not clear what he hopes this act will achieve. But then after he does that, he prays a second time, Oh Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And in answering this prayer, God shows his persistence, his boundary-bursting power once again. Because God has crossed the boundary between, between Israel and the wilderness. He, he crossed the boundary between Israel and an enemy nation. He, he crossed the boundary between Jew and pagan. He crossed the boundary between prophet and widow. He crossed the boundary between a hopeless reality and the promise of faith. And here he crosses the ultimate boundary, the boundary of sin and death. As Peter Lightheart wrote on this, he says, This is the God of Jesus Christ. The God who comes to us in Jesus Christ. Will he enter the wilderness for us? He has done in Jesus. Will he cross into the territory of the prince of this world for us? 
He has done in Jesus. Will he cross the boundary between the living and the dead for us? He has done in Jesus. The Lord is the boundary transgressing, infinite, boundless God because he is the living God. He never retreats, never suffers a setback, is never frustrated. Nothing can hold him or keep him back. Drought cannot keep him back. In fact, he sends the drought. Death cannot keep him away. He is the Lord of life and death and demonstrates his power over life and death in the resurrection of Jesus. And he promises to put his infinite resources at the disposal of those who pray, like Elijah, in the righteousness of faith. He is our helper, ready and waiting to receive instructions, like Elijah gives him, through the effectual and fervent prayers of righteous believers. That's an incredible statement. But the story gives us an an incredible invitation to faith in the living God. And a trust that in a world that is filled with lies, all kinds of lies, His word is truth. In a world that is divided into all kinds of categories, He can unite. And in a world where we are are, are living under the shroud of the the shadow of death and and the fear that its hand is going to touch our households, take hold of someone that we love. He is the God who has defeated death. And at this moment, we can say that only a living God can save us now. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.